Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Stephen Preskill to our podcast today. He's just published a new book, Education in Black and White, Miles Horton and the Highlander Center's Vision for Social Justice with the University of California Press. And this book is an excellent introduction to and deeper dive into the history and context of Miles Horton and his many collaborators' work and the Highlander Research and Education Center as it is now known. His many other works include Stories of Teaching, A Foundation for Educational Renewal with Robin Smith Jacobitz, Skills for Democracy, Promoting Dialogue in Schools, with George G. Otero and Loris Fermilia, and three books with Stephen Brookfield, who graciously did an earlier podcast with us and has graciously provided the outro music to this podcast. And these books include Discussion as a Way of Teaching, The Discussion Book, and Learning as a Way of Leading, Lessons from the Struggle of Social Justice a book I've used many semesters in my internship class. His career as an educator began as a middle school teacher, then to special education coordinator, then after a doctorate in American education, a move to university professor, as regents professor at the University of New Mexico, then as distinguished professor of civic engagement at Wagner College, and after completing an MFA in nonfiction writing at Columbia University, now serving as a writing consultant there. Through history, theory, and narrative, Stephen Preskill shows us what a commitment to democratic education and teaching for social justice entails. We are delighted to have this conversation with you today, Stephen Preskill. Hello. Okay, first question. So, we want to talk about your new book, Education in Black and White, Miles Horton and the Highlander Center's Vision for Social Justice, which we hope that all of our listeners will go out and buy. Here's our plug. Um, and in this book, you provide really clear historical, cultural, and political context for Miles Horton and the Highlander Center. So we were wondering if just to start, you might both kind of give our listeners some context on, you know, what's your book about? Who Who is Miles Horton? What's the Highlander Center? And But then in particular, um, how did you come to be connected um, to this work? Sure. So, um, Miles Horton has been um, a kind of role model and someone I've looked up to probably since the 1980s. I mean, I only met Miles once and it's not like I had a relationship with him, but, but, I, but he's an intellectual and, and social justice role model in a lot of ways. And it, it all started when Bill Moyers interviewed Miles Horton in a kind of famous interview back in about 1981 when they were just about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Highlander. Highlander started in 1932 and in 1981-82, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary. And um, when I listened to Miles talk, for one thing, I was amazed at how funny he was and what a good storyteller he was, but also how totally committed he was to bringing about social change in humane 
and very community-centered way. Miles always said that what he wanted to know most about people were their experiences, because, as he put it, because that's what a person is. Their accumulated experiences in many ways is who they are. And so to bring about change, to bring people together, to, to do something worthwhile, you first had to find out who are these people? What have their experiences been? What are their passions? What do they love? What do they hate? Well, what are they struggling with? And this idea that we start with learners' stories. So whoever it is who's gathered there, students, learners, participants, community members, whatever word we wanna use. The idea that it isn't the teacher who goes first, the so-called teacher or facilitator, it's the people who are gathered there who go first. And in some sense are always going first because we're trying to figure out together how to do something different and how to, how to do something that's gonna be more respectful of, of people's concerns and interests and, and passions. And so we have to get away from individualism where it's all about each individual person. I mean, I, to Miles, that was one of the most destructive things. So how can we work as a community to get to know one another's experiences and through that process, find a way to identify our shared experiences. What are we going through that's similar? And in what sense do we share a problem or a difficulty or a challenge that we then together wanna try to address? And, and so, you know, I heard all of this and so much more, um, his willingness to, to, to put his body on the line, to, he's beaten up many times, he went to jail many times. Um, and usually, you know, it's kind of like Bob Moses trying to walk into a place to register people to vote and you're beaten on the head. I mean, it, it was those kinds of, of situations that Miles would find himself in. But he, but he reached a point where he said his own, his own welfare didn't really matter. His own life didn't really matter um, because he was so caught up in the movement. And then he, then he added the paradox, and then my life meant, meant more than it ever meant. By being caught up in the movement, by trying to do this work for social change, he began to see what really mattered and what made life in some sense worth living. Now, I'm not gonna say to you that I learned all those lessons and that I live all those lessons. I don't, but I was, but in some ways I've tried. And more important, I, I was just so taken with what Miles and Highlander were trying to do. And you know, one of the problems, and we could talk about this if you want, one of the problems with writing a biography about Miles Horton is that his life should always be seen in the context of Highlander and social change and places all over the South primarily, although not just that where he was trying to rid them of racism, where he was trying to bring in socially just practices, where he was trying to see to it that people got decent pay and were able to experience decent working conditions. Um, it, you know, it, it, that all has to be taken into account that that's what he was focused on. That's, that's what mattered to him. And that's what gave his life uh, some kind of meaning. And, and I thought at the time, I was a middle school teacher and I was struggling to reach out to seventh and eighth graders and I had some success, but so often I would fall back into the habit of a kind of didactic teacher focused, you know, way of, of educating. And I'd, 
you know, I'd, I'd scold myself for doing it and I recognize how wrong that was, but I kept, Miles was someone I had in mind as a model of someone I wanted to be more like because I too often wasn't like him. I too often wasn't putting the students or the learners or the community members first. I was putting myself first. And so he, for years, you know, I read, I read Frank Adams' book, um, uh, um, and that he wrote with Miles Horton, um, which is called what? Uh, Seeds of, um, not funny, not uprooting seeds of change. Uh, I suddenly can't remember. Anyway, it's from the mid seventies. Uh, and that was the first attempt to capture what Highlander was about. And then in the eighties, uh, a guy named, um, John Glenn wrote a book about Highlander, which in some ways is still a definitive book about Highlander, at least up to 1961 after it was closed down. Um, then of course, Herb Cole put together a, an oral history with Miles. There's the talking book with Paulo Freire. All this stuff started to come out. It was a kind of a renaissance of not just Miles Horton, but of Highlander experiences. And that was all in the eighties and then somewhat into the nineties. And then interestingly, after that, there's very little. We went through this dry period. It was kind of like Miles and Highlander were relevant for a while in the late 70s and in the 80s and in the early 90s. Then we get Dale Jacobs, who puts together a beautiful reader in 2003 of a lot of key writings of Miles Horton, but there's almost nothing else. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was remind people uh, about Miles Horton. Let me tell you a quick story about that. I was in a movie theater and the movie about um, um, the Supreme Court Justice, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had just was just over. And it was a group of pretty distinguished looking people. And Bill Moyers was in the group and they all were standing around drinking. And I couldn't resist going up to Bill Moyers to tell him I'm working on this Highlander book, and this is like 2018. And I did, and he got so excited. He said, people are forgetting Miles. We need more books like that. We need more perspectives like that. And so it gave me a lot of, of you know, I was sort of discouraged at that point with, with the book, but it gave me a, a lot of new uh, motivation and excitement about the book because he, he's right. We need more people writing about Miles Horton. And by the way, let me stop for a second and mention something I really wanted to mention. And that is when my book came out about Miles Horton, the first book about Zylvia Horton came out, who was Miles' wife and co-leader at Highlander from 1935 to 1956. She died tragically, much too young in a strange accident. But um, Kim Rule, who you should have on your program. She's, she's written a terrific book. It, it gives you a real feel for what life at Highlander was like. Kim Rule has written this book, um, A Singing Army. That's the first book about, about Zylvia Horton. And it fills such a huge gap in what we know about Highlander and about Miles and Zylvia and, and many other people. And of course, one of Zylvia's claim to fame, though it isn't the only one, is that she helped to popularize We Shall Overcome. Pete Seeger and her changed it a little bit to make it more singable, and then they started singing it. Um, and then it was, and then Guy Carawan, who became the, the sort of 
music person at Highlander started singing it with the SNCC students and also sang it with Dr. King. And when he came in 1957 for the 25th anniversary and King, the story goes when Dr. King was leaving, he was with, um, he was with an activist and um, he kept talking about the song. And he said, that's, that's a really catchy song. He said, and that was the first time. And no one really knew the song, We Shall Overcome. It was only in the sixties that, that it became popularized. So um, anyway, so my, my point in general is, I, I, it's not as though I needed to write a book, but I needed to say something about Miles. I, I needed to sort of uh, allow the world to re-encounter Miles Horton and Highlander and all the, the marvelous things that they had done. It also gave me a chance to take Miles all the way to his passing. So there wasn't any book that talked about the, the talking book with, with Paulo Freire. There wasn't a book that talked about his work in Nicaragua. Um, there wasn't anything about his return to Appalachia as an emphasis. And there wasn't anything about the cancer that he suffered from and his final days um, at, at Highlander. He died at, at the Highlander Center in Newmarket. Um, so it gave me a chance to talk about um, some of that a little bit. I also have a chapter on a woman named Maxine Waller who went to Highlander a lot. And I'm very proud of that chapter because it's really not about Miles. It's about this amazing activist from Virginia who helped remake her town. But because she was being guided to a certain extent by Highlander and by Miles himself, she would later say that, that the long haul was, her, she used to go to bed with a Bible and now she goes to the bed with the Bible and Miles booked the long haul. Anyway, um, it was the result of the, uh, the influence of Highlander that she was able to make, able to help make the big changes that happened in this little town um, in Virginia. So, so that was another opportunity for me to have a voice come into the story that isn't ordinarily in that story. Yeah, it's it's just so good to have this context extended and and. Uh and uh, reinvented for us. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about the book is you, your highlighting of several of the women uh, who were so important, Zilphia, also um, you know, the head of education, uh, Septima Clark, and then the one called the ideal teacher, who's one of my favorites, uh, Bernice Robinson. Right. Uh, the beautician and seamstress in Charleston, South Carolina, who um, was the really, she and Esau Jenkins were the real um, uh, impetus for the citizenship schools. They and really if, were. Yeah. And so if you would talk about uh, sort of the philosophy of education, popular education, uh, the citizenship schools, um, that's sort of a model that I keep as, as an ideal in my own teaching, you know, is Bernice in the back of that beauty parlor teaching people how to write their names and, right. and that impossible literacy test for voting. So, you know, uh, one of the things I love about the citizenship school story is that it was a true collaboration. Miles is being written out a little bit by some authors from that story. And in some ways he should be because too often, even in his own telling, he would be too prominent and the others were too much in the background. 
But now we're, we're losing a sense that Miles had a, an important role to play as well. There were really four people who made it happen. There's no question that Septima Clark was central. Bernice Robinson was the ideal teacher. Miles would go to visit her for the first time. and He was blown away by what she was doing and how well she was connecting with the students. And then Esau, I mean, if without Esau, none of this happens. So I, I mean, I love Septima Clark and Bernice Robinson, but it's Esau that first makes it go. He's the one who comes to Highlander and says, my people can't vote. My people can't get a job. My people aren't being heard. Um, we can't have, have black representatives in the, in the school board because they're not able to register to vote. We need to do something. And at first he didn't ask for a school, but what he did say is, I need support, I need help. And gradually the idea of a school came forward because of Septima Clark and, and, and partly because of Bernice Robinson. But in a way, what happened was Esau asked for this help and understood John's Island so deeply and, and how to bring about change there. But he still needed help in thinking about, well, what would the school look like and where would the school be? And that's where Miles provided some of the resources and where Septima Clark in about 1955, about a year into the project, she just takes it over. Because what happens is that when Miles comes to talk to people on, on John's Island and speaks to all black audiences, he just didn't have the credibility that Septima Clark had. And Septima understood the people of, of John's Island. She had been a teacher there at age 18. That's actually how, when she first got to know Esau, and it's, you know, it's 40 years later when they're doing the citizenship schools. Um, but so she really does take hold. And then, of course, she uh, chooses, although Miles also thought it was a good idea, she chooses Bernice Robinson to be this ideal teacher. And Bernice Robinson also being Septimus' niece. They really knew each other well. They had all worked together on, on the NAACP executive committee back in, in uh, Charleston. So they all kind of knew each other and got to know Miles because of Highlander. But Highlander provides the money so that they can do that school in the back of the grocery store and in the back of the beautician's shop. So it's, a, it's this beautiful collaboration, but the collaboration is about how do we get more people involved in this community? How do we get more people able to vote? How do we get more people to have a voice? And when they have a voice for it to be an informed voice because the citizenship school goes from being largely a literacy school to something more like a citizenship school. What, is it, what does it look like to be a good citizen? What does it look like to participate actively? How can we make that happen? What strategies can we, can we put forward? And of course, I mean, I guess the greatest thing about what happened is what begins in John's Island spreads all over that territory to, to, the other, to many of the other islands, to Charleston, to places like Alabama, Mississippi. I mean, it's, it just becomes this true social movement. And I, and I think the fact that it became a social movement in this way probably has to be attributed most of all to Septima Clark, who really understood how to reach people and how to make these citizenship schools relevant uh, for people. Bernice was able to do the teaching but Septimer Clark was sort of doing the organizing and thinking in this 
larger way about how to expand it. Now, eventually, Bernice gives up her teaching role and also becomes an organizer in a very, very effective one. But um, I love I love the collaborative spirit of of the citizenship school. And as you probably know, um, eventually, um, Miles wants it, it just becomes too too much for Highlander handle and also Highlanders in trouble because the state of Tennessee wants to close it down for trumped up completely un, you know, unsupportable reasons. Um, and so he wants to hand it off to, um, to SELC, to Dr. King and Andrew Young. Andrew Young was going to run uh, the citizenship schools, but then that doesn't, that doesn't last for that long. Um, Although he and and they end up in Dorchester, um, Georgia, is it? Um, to to uh, where they hold the the citizenship school and hundreds of people end up coming to them at that at that site and coming through and becoming trained teachers who then go back out into the communities and and teach even more people and I, I don't know I think it's fifty fifty thousand to a hundred thousand uh, people were able to gain the vote uh, and even more over time as a result of the work of the citizenship schools. So if the point was to give people more of a voice and more of an impact on what was happening in their communities, um, you have to call it just this rousing, rousing success. Curious if you could sort of bring us up to Highlander, sort of the present work. Like, how do you see the sort of lineage playing out? Um, many of our listeners will know, and your book begins with talking about the the terrible fire that, um, in which many of the, the center's collections, historical documents were were lost. Um, I'm curious, you know, sort of how do you see the work continuing today? How what stayed the same, and how has it changed? Well, um, I mean, certainly it stayed the same in the sense that they're trying to focus on enriching, strengthening, developing communities of people. So community collaboration, uh, working together for social change, supporting each other, telling stories uh, about each other's experiences, sharing those stories, finding the common ground, all of those basic principles um, that, that Miles uh, practiced and many others at Highlander practice are very much a part of today's uh, Highlander. Lots of questioning, you know, Miles said sometimes his only participation in a workshop was through questioning. I think a lot of folks who are at Highlander now still go by that idea that our job is to stimulate others. Our job is to facilitate facilitate the give and take of ideas. And we can do that by thoughtful, probing, open kinds of, of questioning and lots of dialogue, lots of dialogue. And then, and then, you know, another signature of Highlander was when the workshop's over, what are we going to do when we go back to our communities? What are we going to do differently? What, what have we learned here that, that we can, you know, play out in our own communities and, and bring into our own communities in some way? I do think, though, that Highlander is much more um, now in touch with all kinds of social movements uh, around 
you know, and not just around race, but uh, uh, around gender and, and around sexual orientation and around disability. And the list goes on and on. And it's, I'm kind of overwhelmed at how well informed they are um, and how committed they are to bringing people all different kinds, all different kinds of backgrounds to Highlander. Miles was kind of slow and even recognizing the need for a feminist perspective and was, was slow at times in recognizing the need of his staff to have, um, to have schools and childcare. He was kind of reluctant to do it. Um, never really apologized for it either. Mike Clark who succeeded him later said, I, I really was, you know, I, I, I really am sorry that I wasn't more supportive of this and more aware of what I should have been doing. Miles, Miles never did that. And I, I mean, I don't want to hold that against him too much, but there was a, there was a conservatism in him uh, because his focus tended to be very much on race and it continued to be on race on poverty in Appalachia in particular, um, and on all the issues facing poor people in Appalachia. Um, for a while, it, it really was, right? It, at first it was labor unions and, and labor issues. Uh, then it was race, then it was Appalachia and, and poverty in Appalachia, but he didn't, Miles, while he was leading there, didn't move much beyond that. The Highlanders that came after did a much better job of being all-encompassing and all-inclusive and, and bringing a, a, a really radical perspective to some of the social change efforts too, while still creating this very welcoming uh, sense of community, this sense that we're, we're not just trying to make change, but we're also trying to get to know one another and we're trying to work together and also have fun together. So the, the role, you know, square dancing and music were such in singing were such important parts of the early Highlander. Now that those activities and many more are part of the current um, Highlander. So that, that need to build community and to do it in lots of different ways through food, you know, the, the cafeteria remains a really central part of the, Highlander experience, to do it through the, the dormitories that they've created that are quite comfortable for people and allow them to house as many as 50 people or, or even more. The use of the rocking chairs in a circle where people come together and have those dialogues, that's, that was very much a thing that Miles wanted to see and it continues. I mean, you can go there and see all those, all those rocking chairs in a circle. But I, but I, 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 I am, I think right now there's more excitement at Highlander than there has been for many years. And it's because of their two leaders. Um, it's because they're so committed and so strong and so involved and so, um, so visible too. They're not just visible at Highlander, but they're visible everywhere on podcasts and on television programs and through writing articles and um, using uh, publicity effectively at Highlander itself. So uh, I think this is a, this is a renaissance, my senses, and I, I don't know that well, I, this is a real renaissance for Highlander. It's, it's back and stronger than ever. Yeah, I would agree. I get their newsletter all the time yeah. and it's, it's incredible. There's the so much going on. That's right. 
And, and by the way, if you compare the newsletter now, and maybe that's not entirely fair to the newsletters they used to send out, it's there's really quite a difference. It's just it just covers so many more issues, more youth issues too. My another thing that Miles was not that enthusiastic about was there was a preschool at one point, but they didn't do much to sustain it. He he really wanted Highlander to be in a, a center for adults. And uh, subsequent people pushed back on that. And now I think it's a place very much for youth and adults. And I, and I bet Miles would embrace that now. But at the time, he was kind of reluctant because he really saw himself as an adult educator. And he argued that adults have a past that kids don't have. And that it's that past that you're using as a kind of teaching tool. And so you, you can't do it as effectively with kids. But... I think a lot of people have shown that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? I don't want to jump over you, Tina. I Go think ahead. we're probably bursting at the seams with questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I just, I wanted to ask, um, and this goes directly from this history question, like you teach from history, like that's the source of, that's, a, that's I mean, presumably, and as you sort of beautifully lay out, the, the source of the sort of knowledge in the room that becomes the material that the facilitator teacher um, uses to kind of bring to collective consciousness, share experiences, analyze, reflect, all of that. I feel like um, there is, there, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to what I think a lot of our listeners who are trying to do sort of popular education practices in the context of very, very formal selective institutions, um, gate-kept institutions may run into, but probably that anyone who's doing any kind of education anywhere and is trying to sort of draw on these models runs into at times, which is this sort of tension and tightrope that people sometimes walk between um, creating spaces that are prescribing a certain kind of change, like come to consciousness about the following issues around labor and racism and sexism and all of this in relation to making spaces that are incubators for that change so that it's not coming from the top down. So many of us, because, you know, because of how we are situated, because of the, you know, the certain commitments we have, because how, of how we've been formed through these liberatory models, have like clear ideas about politics, about um, positions, about like the labor movement or whatever. And I'm curious, I think a lot of teachers who do this liberatory stuff, like I've seen, I've seen especially novices with it, like try put the cart before the horse, I guess. Or like, how do we in our methods, how do we let our, how do we trust that the methods can reflect liberatory commitments without in, falling into the easy thing, which is often to try to impose them? Um, can you, does, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it, it makes sense. Like, I've, I've struggled with this myself. And so, I, so I'm not sure I have really helpful responses, but one thing that's say for Miles Horton and for me, <laughs> One thing that's central is starting with the people in the room. So I don't think I don't think you can bring paradigms in and expect people to start making sense of them. I think you have to start with people's experiences and and what's exciting them, but also what's troubling them, and and maybe especially what's troubling them. 
and to to figure out is there a way to see connections among people who are troubled by similar kinds of things or or with a little bit of reframing we can see that the source of the trouble and the problem is is similar but i think it's so easy to short circuit the just who's in the room part and so my bias actually is to take a lot of time on that maybe to the detriment of not getting as far in a you know kind of holistic systemic way but i think we owe our students community members the learners whoever it is we owe it to let them have this chance because it's really important to people i think to talk about what they're struggling with uh to tell talk some of their about some of their stories some of the setbacks they've experienced and also some of the you know great things that have happened to them and and begin and then and then at the same time we have to encourage everybody to recognize this isn't just a chance for you to tell your story it's also a chance for you to learn from lots of other people's stories so we, we i think we make a terrible mistake if we think i'm going to get to tell my story and that's the main thing of course it's not but it's easy to lose sight of that i think if we unless we talk about it and um and so you know we need to be hearing other people's stories and we need to start developing strategies to draw out other people's stories too i think this is so important questioning strategies and uh strategies of affirming others uh issues around empathy feeling more deeply what someone else is going through and being able to express that but in the process helping us to see why those feelings might be relevant for a number of us in in that room so i think that's how communities develop i think that's how people identify with one another as as part of the same community or team or 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 whatever it is and only gradually can we move towards some of those system wide things and we also can't anticipate what the troubles are um I think we have to be a little bit careful that we know what's going to come up. We need openness is really important in this that we be open to some things maybe we're not prepared to hear or concerns that we're not used to hearing that need an airing and that need an opportunity to be explored by the group and talked about by the group. So and by the way just logistically this is why I and Stephen Brookfield for that matter. That's why the two of us believe so strongly in small groups, pairs, not doing everything in a large group. It will simply will not work. Not I love large group activities, but if you do it all in the large group, you won't get nearly as far as you want to. You won't be able to get as as deeply into the issues and you won't get that sense of sharing with one another's experiences and identifying with one another's experiences unless you're doing lots of different configurations of grouping. So just from a I guess you call that a technical or pedagogical view, I think the whole grouping thing is very very important. And at Highlander, as I understand it when Miles was there, they'd start in the large group, but then they'd move into small groups and they often would have a task to do, but the task would grow out of what they had shared and what some of their experiences had been. And then in some cases the groups would get even smaller as they were as different people were 
learning to focus on a particular topic that they really wanted to get into a, a little bit more. And there might only be two or three people who would be looking at that topic together. So, Well, I want to follow up on this um, with uh, two of the books that you co-wrote with um, Stephen Brookfield on discussion. Uh, discussion is a way of teaching and the discussion book, which are wonderful resources. And the theory in discussion as a way um, of teaching is, uh, is fundamental. But when I've spoken with colleagues who have made use of these books, they go for the kind of, oh, let me find a trick in here I can use in class to get my students to focus more on the reading and on the task. It's very task oriented. And so take that a little bit further. Um, what do you see as the best use of these practices? You've talked some about that already, um, but you know, how, in what ways do you see the traditional classroom hierarchy, um, even if this sort of undoes the banking method, but still leaves the power dynamics in place? Um, you know, what, what is your vision for a, a truly democratic classroom? What, is, what does that look like in, in a radical kind of way? If, it, if you see democracy there, um, what is what is it? What does it look like? So on your podcast um, page, the first page, I noticed that you've got teaching with your mouth shut um, showing. So one of the ways that I know uh, if a class is moving in a democratic direction, committed to democracy, is who's doing most of the talking. And if the teacher's doing most of it, then it's not. <laughs> I mean, I know that's simplistic and it's not always the case and it depends on, but in general, the, somehow the classroom has to be turned over to the students. And these, these exercises that Stephen and I do, and by the way, we do workshops at Teachers College and, and we end up, because we're trying to introduce all these techniques, we end up doing all the techniques, but without showing how they might be connected and how they might be used in a, in a, in a more thoughtful, you know, and, and uh, related way. Anyway, um, so all these techniques are, are trying to get students used to being the ones who drive what happens. I mean, for instance, there's one called Chalk Talk, where we pose a question and then everyone has a piece of chalk and they write their answers or they draw pictures or they do whatever they want to do to express themselves in response to that question. Well, the only, the only teacher voice in that exercise is the question. The rest of the time, the students are putting up all of these comments and, and they're looking at what's going up there and they are able to see it and think about it a little bit and then we step back and the next thing we say is, well, what do you see? What are the patterns? What are the themes? What are the overlapping words? Where, where are the same words appearing? And what does that tell you about what's important in the answer to this question? And to me, that's an example of, the, of our attempt to, and, and of course we, it's always in a limited way, but we're, we're giving up some of our power and making sure that the students are have some of that power to make decisions, 
to think more deeply and creatively. And that's very important to Miles Horton to be able to think creatively in ways that we don't always think to avoid groupthink, to avoid the conventional way of thinking. Um, these exercises are all meant to kind of stir people up and, and say, what is it, you know, what does it look like when, when you're in charge, when you're the ones deciding what the agenda is? I once, I once gave an, a, a syllabus out uh, that was blank. And, and, and I simply said to the students, I'm, I'm looking to you to fill this syllabus in. We're gonna take a couple of, of uh, days to do it or a couple of class sessions, but I want through discussion, through you know, our exchanges to figure out what this class should be about. And I'll help write it, but basically you're building the syllabus. To, to me, that's another example of democratizing the classroom. It's bringing student voice forward. It's, but it's also, it's more than just voice. It's also uh, wonderful ideas that students might have that haven't been taken seriously or haven't been given consideration in the past are finally given that, are finally shown some respect and, and given a role in the, in the classroom. And I, I think the more we do that, uh, whatever strategy it is, the more we have the students talking and, and also gradually critiquing each other too, but in really positive and thoughtful ways, the closer, closer we get to the kind of classrooms that a lot of us uh, wanna have. So the, the syllabus exercise, is, is that from Elliot Wigington? Uh, and the Foxfire method, just curious. Was it? I mean, maybe it was. I didn't remember Elliot Wigginton. That's so yeah. funny to bring up Elliot Wigginton. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely read that book. Mm -hmm. and, Sometimes uh, a shiny moment, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Sometimes a shiny moment. moment. Yeah, yeah um, he, he did that at, uh, with the Foxfire students. Um, yeah, I've never had the courage to do that quite. <laughs> Close. I mean, I, I had a syllabus and they, they uh, annotate, but. Um, and I can't, and I'm not gonna tell you that it turned out so fantastically either. There was a lot of confusion and mm -hmm. anger and, and kind of um, frust you know, frustration. <laughs> what, I mean, what is this all about? I mean, I expect to be you know, told what, what we're gonna learn and what the expectations are and requirements, but that's, that's part of the exercise too, right? Is, is giving them that, that feeling that this is a very different kind of learning experience but also that they're not gonna be held accountable for saying something critical about the instructor. So, but by the way, another, another thing that, that I've, that I've uh, taken from Stephen, Stephen is the expert on this, is the critical incident questionnaire. At the end of, of any kind of learning experience, getting feedback from students about when were they engaged, when were they distanced, or when were they confused, when did they feel affirmed, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And the more you can get that sort of feedback from students, the more you can help to shape with them the sort of classroom they want. Because the idea of the CIQ is not just to get the feedback, it's to analyze the feedback and then show it to the students. Here's what you said about the last class we had. What does that tell you about the progress we're making or where we're going or whether we're going in the wrong direction? And, all that that involves and that that surprises students that that you're i mean too often i think we fill out these 
evaluation forms and we never hear about them again. In this case, we're trying to model the idea that getting feedback matters to us and it's gonna shape the experiences we have and, and it's, gonna, it's gonna have an impact on the kind of teaching that I'm doing in this class. I feel like one of the recurrent um, complaint fests that Tina and I are often having with each other on this podcast and off is about a certain kind of um, teacher workshop that is kind of sometimes can be a one-off in teaching and learning centers or like there were a ton of these um in like the teacher trainings at, in grad school when i was finishing my phd where um there are there, there are, there's this suggestion that people are building community in their classes and creating rapport and trust um, and a sort of sense of like shared democracy. Um, but then when it comes down to it, like what's being offered is like a list of tricks, like here are the icebreakers you use and like you should try this thing. And it's kind of like accessorizing the undemocratic classroom so that it may look a little bit more like democracy. But like when you like scratch the surface, it or you know, pull out one Jacob block, it falls apart. Um, so I'm curious about sort of, um, we've talked a little bit about this already with the syllabus stuff. Um, and with the, you know, being open to critique teachers shutting their mouths. Um, but are there are there other practices or stories you have um, about ways to challenge classroom hierarchy or build, um, make, create the conditions for these kinds of dialogues um, that may be either implicitly or explicitly um, an alternative to the kind of like checklist tricks and tips based um, community building skill set. Well, I mean, I do appreciate what you're saying. And I, I think something like our discussion book can come off that way as, as little tricks or, or, you know, strategies or something like that in order to move towards democracy. But it, it really isn't having that um, effect. But I don't know how else to do it but to open up the classroom to who learners are, uh, what their experiences have been, what their stories are. I mean, one of, the, one of the ways I've run some pretty successful classrooms is just by going around the circle and getting people to say, to talk about a story about learning maybe, or it could be about anything that is really powerful for them, that, that matters to them a lot. And so, and it can take a long time to do this. Um, another, another exercise I've done is bring in, bring in an artifact of some kind that means a lot to you and tell us a story that revolves around that um, artifact. It opens up the classroom to a whole different form of learning where the teacher is completely decentered. And now it's the student's stories. And, and again, we have the same problem of we're not just gonna tell our stories, we're also going to learn from and probe into and find out more about each other's stories. We're, you know, we're really, we're gonna make this an exercise in community building in which we relate to each other by virtue of you know, the 
the the the content of those stories and and the emotions associated with those stories. So, for me, that's um, that's always been the key uh, to 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 doing this, um, because what what happens, Lucia, I think, when you, when you do the technique thing or when you've got the checklist and, and that sort of thing, is it ends up being a teacher-controlled situation. It still ends up being the teacher sort of monitoring this and maybe checking off which techniques were tried or which little um, cute ideas were tried. When we open up the classroom to stories um, and, and stories about trouble and difficulty and challenge, we're opening it up to the, to the unknown, to almost anything. And I, that's where I prefer to be uh, from a democratic point of view, I want to hear really what, who they are, you know, and what they care about and um, what their struggles are. And I don't know how else to do that than to just do it. Just say, we're going to, we're going to do around the storytelling and, and, and then we're going to talk about what we heard and what we think it means. And are there some recurring themes or, or are there some striking contradictions and tensions? I love that. Yeah, I, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you also um, wrote a book earlier on uh, teacher narratives. And I can't believe you tracked down all well, these books. I just, thank well, you. It's just so nice. You, you've uh, revealed the pedagogical nerd syndrome here. Um, well, I really like Joe. That was really good. I like stories like Jonathan Kozel's letters to a first year teacher and all those things. Um, but the stories of teaching that you wrote with Robin Smith, uh, Jacobitz, um, uh, I'd like you to talk more about the importance of reflective critical narrative in teacher development, um, like our own stories that we bring as we are, you know, hearing and sharing stories with students. Um, and your own journey as an educator from, you know, middle school teacher, special ed coordinator, how you did all that, I don't know, <laughs> and survive, um, through, you know, the educational industrial pipeline. Um, and, um, and in the book, you, you talk about Herbert Cole, and you have a section on the narrative of hope. Um, would you talk about your own narrative of hope? So I wrote that I wrote that stories of teaching book with Robin because I went through a period where I was just amazed by the teacher narratives that were out there, stories of teaching, of working with learners, of coming to new understandings. And I just, I just kept encountering more and more wonderful stories. And I began to believe that one of the things that was missing from teacher education were these stories. I mean, I'm not, some people were exposed to them, but for the most part, they weren't. And that if people could be exposed to these stories and talk about these stories and learn from these stories and then begin to write their own stories, it would do more to transform teacher education than almost anything I could think of. I loved them. I mean, I, and I still do. I loved them so much. So Mike, do, you, do either of you know who Mike Rose was? So 
you know, so Mike Rose wrote a book called Lives on the Boundary back in 1990. And, um, and he's a great writing. He just died. He just passed away, um, which surprised me. But it was a book that meant so much to me because he, he was able to tell his story as a teacher, as a poor kid growing up in, in East LA. And then how that also related to his view of what educational policy should be. He took it from the particular to this large systemic, amazing analysis. He drew on history, he drew on sociology, he, he was through a psychology program, so he was drawing on psychological perspectives. And he really, he, it was almost like a curriculum in itself of what teacher education could be. So I, I've, I still believe that those, those books, that, that Herb Cole book that I, that I loved so much, um, there's, there's so many of them, uh, the Kozal, you know, Death at an Early Age uh, is still such a powerful book to read. Um, and it, and those, those stories tend to also be about how dysfunctional schools are. It, it almost, it's inevitable that they're about that. And so one of the topics becomes how do we make them a little less dysfunctional? Um, why, are, why are schools that way and how can we make a difference? But you, you know, you asked about hope Tina and I, um, I know this is where my hope comes from. It comes from stories. So when I read, you know, when I read uh, Freire's Pedagogy of Hope, which is really, a, I think he subtitles it a, a rereading of pedago uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, or it's not a rereading, but it's almost, that's almost what it is. It's, it's kind of a retrospective look at what it was like to do that and the effect it had on him and the impact. It, but at the beginning, he talks about it. I cannot imagine life without hope. And I thought the mess, part of the message that he was sending was we need to be telling stories about, um, about change and about social justice and about making shifts and transformations that really make a difference for people. At the end of Lies on the Boundary, I think it's the very end, Mike Rose is giving an, uh, an IQ test to a student whom he knows has a lot of promise. And he notices all the, the mistakes she makes, you know, according to the test anyway. But, he's, but he knows the student so well and understands these kinds of issues so well that he knows why she's making the mistakes she's making. It has nothing to do with her intelligence. It has to do with her experience. It has to do with the trickiness in the questions, which is part of the point. It, ha it has to do with a perspective that she brings to the test that isn't well suited for taking the test at this particular time. But he realizes that as he dialogues with her, she can get the questions right, which mm -hmm. is a little bit of support, a little bit of guidance, a, a little bit of, of uh, you know, a, a different kind of positioning for that question. And I get hope from that. I get hope from someone like Mike Rose showing us that these students who have been labeled unable and disabled and lacking in intelligence again and again and again have abilities and promise and, and, and you know, in, intelligence and beauty um, that we miss again and again and again, and that 
And then we, and when we have ways to see it, micros had ways to see how penetrating this student's mind could be with just a little bit of help. When we have ways to see it, I mean, in some ways a growth mindset, which also gives me hope, um, I think, I think we can get closer to the kinds of changes we want. And that, that makes me, uh, that makes me hopeful. I mean, I mean, what did Joan Didion say? Something like we tell stories in order to live, in order to survive. I, I, I don't think we do it just to live. I think we do it to thrive. We tell stories to help one another thrive too. And, and a lot of the best stories, not always in a really direct way, but in indirect ways and in subtle ways and in complex ways, um, show us that we've got possibilities in our lives um, that we hadn't realized. Wow, thank you for that. I, I feel like the, hours, the hour always passes way too fast. Um, before we get to our final question, which is the question we always ask, um, we got, this is kind of a two-part question. I'm gonna roll this into with this two questions into one, which is, is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you wanna to talk to us about pre-radical pedagogy? And two, what, you know, what, 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 what's next for you? Um, I, don't, I mean, I can't really think of anything that I, I would have liked you to ask me about or uh, to touch on. I do love talking about Miles Horton and his life and his background and how he came to be the person that he is. But, um, you know, maybe another time. Um, so, no, I, I, I don't think there's anything like that. Um, I, I am struggling with the next stage for me. It actually relates to what I wanted to share about what I'm reading or thinking about or obsessing about. Um, and, and it's James Baldwin. So I've, I've written an article recently that may appear in a book about rereading about the fire next time. And um, I realized that as I read Baldwin, I, um, I was gaining insight into myself too, in my own racism and my own struggle to rid myself of, of racism. And in some ways, The Fire Next Time is about love also. Surprisingly, love is a very strong theme in that essay. And um, I, I, I liked the idea that moving towards a less racist, a non-racist, um, an anti-racist society is at least in part about a kind of love for each other, but also for what we can be, not just for each other individually, maybe not primarily that, but what, what we can be as a community. Um, there are two books that, I mean, I'm sure there are many others, but a couple of books that have recently come out, Eddie Glau Jr has a book called uh, Begin Again about Baldwin in which he thinks some of his later writings, and I'm almost sure he's right, have been neglected. Some of those later writings are kind of pessimistic. They're post assassination of Dr. King and uh, the civil rights movement is sort of winding down and he's very depressed, but he also uses some of that, some of that sense of, you know, we're, we've gotten through an era and we're in a very bad place now. He uses that in interesting ways to begin to construct 
a new sense of possibility. And so that's what Gloud means by begin again. And, and what Baldwin refers to is, as beginning again, as dark as things were, as, as bad as things seemed, he also was seeing possibilities. Um, and then there's this amazing book by a guy named Nicholas Bacola, which is about a debate that uh, Baldwin and uh, William F. Buckley had in 1965. And it's surprisingly thorough on Baldwin's life. And on, I'm not particularly interested in Buckley's life, but I loved the way he covered Baldwin's life in ways that other biographers, I think, haven't. And so it was a, it was a really helpful book for me to be thinking about Baldwin's issues, but also how, how Buckley represented the status quo and, and the powers that be, and how clear it was that Baldwin was able to rise above that sort of status quo powers that be perspective. I mean, Baldwin just destroyed Buckley in the debate and Buckley is supposed to be such a great debater and all the rest of it, but it's a, it's a surprisingly, it surprised me. It's a surprisingly interesting and well-written and compelling book about um, James Baldwin as one of our greatest, if not the greatest from that period, public intellectual. So I, forgive me if I'm a little off the topic, but he's on my mind a lot. And I'm, and I'm a little worried about trying to write about him because I feel like everybody's writing about him. Um, and, you know, I'll just, be saying I'll be I'll be giving a second and third hand account that doesn't doesn't come close to the better accounts that Eddie Cloud Jr. and others have given. But I'm just thinking about him a lot. Let's put it that way, and, and implications for what we face. Yeah, I feel like you'll you know the best the best projects start with a question. Yeah. Why am I compelled? What is the compelling yeah. thing here? Right. What might I say? Maybe you won't say anything, but it'll be a better world for you having read or anybody having read James Baldwin. I think so too. I, I think it's time, if nothing comes out of it, it's time really well used. So thank you, Lucia, for that. Yes. yes, absolutely. Well, that's a good segue into this. What are you reading? <laughs> you already told much us. No, no. Um, if you have anything else to add, um, that would be good too. So, um, Here's a pair of, so by the way, I, I wanna tell you my, what I really listen to every day and that's Ezra Klein and the New York Times. So if you haven't been listening to Ezra Klein, it is one of the most um, just all encompassing podcasts I've, mm -hmm. I've ever experienced. He's just on so many topics. He really does a great job on race, but he covers so many issues and so, it's from, um, you know, it's not necessarily from a radical perspective. I, I, I'd call him a progressive. Um, he's not a socialist, but, but still he, he brings in these fantastic guests and he's an amazing interviewer. He always knows the book that some, his guest has written and is always on top of what the issues are that are related. Um, no, I know I wanted to mention is reading Colson Whitehead's um, um, Underground Railroad and Eric Foner's book about the Underground Railroad at the same time, because Colson Whitehead has this very imaginative, literal Underground Railroad in his book. And it's this beautiful novel and it deals with so many of the issues. But then to pair it with Foner, 
who is this marvelous historian and very careful documenter of, of life before the Civil War. And it's mainly about the Underground Railroad, so to speak, in New York, uh, the protection that uh, mainly um, African-Americans provided for others who were being kidnapped away from New York or who were settling in New York and needed protection. It's, it just was fascinating to me to, to pair those two books and to, you know, the, the value of the kind of literary storytelling vision and then the value of the much more analytical and very carefully documented um, perspective on the issue. Lucia, what are you reading, consuming, watching, listening to, et cetera? I'm recovering from a concussion. So I'm not reading a ton. Um, or looking at screens a ton. But I will say this is like, usually I say something like fully unrelated or at least like several degrees removed um, from what we've just talked about. But I will say this this week, um, as I'm teaching this first year seminar called Education, Power, Social Justice. And um, I have all these first years in my class. And so this this week we did, we did a um, theater of the oppressed workshop. So I've just been revisiting um, all of all of the sort of classic writing by um, Augusto Boal, who we talk about his common name on this podcast. So Rainbow of Desire, Games for Actors and Non-Actors. I've learned a lot about the different theater of the oppressed groups around where I live um, or in New York and sort of watched people's videos and like just seen, seen how this, this goes down. And of course, you know, everything, you can read everything about it in the book and it will not prepare you for what happens um, in the, in the workshop space. Um, we were just kind of playing around with it, like getting used to it. And I said, oh, no, no, like, what's the scenario y'all want to work on um, today? And they were like, roommate conflicts. Um, <laughs> and without giving any of the students away, um, somebody was having a roommate conflict and we, and they were in the middle of their two roommates. So like the two roommates were squabbling and they were sort of like, just like- Seems so perfect though for- It was so perfect for this. Yeah. Um, and the conflict was roommate A was bringing a lot of friends into the room and roommate B didn't like that. And then roommate C is in the middle. Um, they ended up playing the scene. We had done all the, we had done image theater. We did all these warmups they ended up doing the scene, but the, all of the actors were so good that um, nobody wanted to tap them out. And so the scene just kept escalating and escalating. Well, and that's what should happen, right? Like, caricatured <laughs> roommates. And so I would be like, yo, like, this is not how it works. We have to stop this and like run it again. And then they would run it again and it would be did, even did, more extreme. Did students try to jump in and stop the... Oh, no, no, no. They were like, I was like, who's going to tag in? And they were like, oh, okay. I want to see what happens. Okay. Um, because <laughs> um, so eventually I tagged in, which added this whole other dynamic of the professor being the roommate who the other character was supposed to be screaming at. Um, now, you're the joker in that case. Yeah. Yes. I, well, I, 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 I seated my role as joker very temporarily. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that probably the like intro philosophy class next door was jealous. A little upset. Yeah. About that. 
but it was great. It was a great group bonding experience. And um, I think we will use it again. And it was the first time doing, Tina, of course, is the person who introduced me to TO. And we did a lot of it in the first year seminar I took from, I took from her many, many years ago. So it was, I, I was so, I was so happy to be able to, to do it in a, a different context. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing TO. You know, you're, you, you get, I, I was like, Tina, who works at Agnes Scott, like, she taught me how to do this or showed me, like, gave me the seed. And anyway, so you've been, you're a comment. Everyone knows who you are in my class. So it's getting around to oh, That's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Your turn. What are you doing? Well, well, yeah. we what are you obsessed with right now? Well, we did my living wage role play. So we'll see how that, um, once they reflect critically reflect on it, where someone plays um, a poverty wage worker on my campus and gets paid, and everybody, you know, rent, utilities, food, healthcare, try to get paid from her monthly pay. And mm -hmm. anyway, it was crazy. It was chaos. It was good chaos. Um, so we'll see what comes of that. Um, but I am reading, and this kind of will dovetail back into the Highlander Center because of. Um, poetry and uh, religion and everything that, that is part of Appalachia. I was very skeptical when I saw this book on the seminary co-op co bookstore front table list on the email. It's a poem, book of poetry by a minister in New York, African-American minister, Dre Jackson. Um, and the title caused a little feminist moment of pause. Uh, God speaks through wounds. Poems on God's unexpected coming. So I thought, hmm. And then John Baptiste write, wrote the foreword and it got great reviews. And I thought, oh, well, I'm teaching Bible and liberation in the, uh, in the spring. So I got it. Well, hmm. <laughs> um, Here we go. Yeah. It's, it's pretty impressive. I'll just read one little, one little phrase. Uh, she's talking about, this is the God Speaks Through Wombs poem. Um, but God speaks through wombs. He's talking about uh, the gospel of Luke chapter one, five through 25. Um, Elizabeth, um, Virgin Mary's cousin, and gives, gives birth to, the, to John the Baptist. Anyway, uh, but God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances. The object of public scorn, given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like a priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. Mm. So for me, uh, this poetry is mic drop after mic drop. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it. What is his name again? His name is uh, Dre Jackson. Okay. Wow. He is founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City, huh. Lower Manhattan. Okay. Um, so poetry and, and Lucia shares uh, this um, also with her um, with her wonderful mother. Um, it it, it kind of gets your head out of the theory and, and into a different kind of story world. I'm a lover of poetry too. And we so appreciate your stories and you have given us hope today. 
Thank you. Yes, I knew this after a faculty meeting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. I'm just like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> good Reminders good. of why we do what we do. Yeah, thank you so much. You, you do it beautifully too. Thank you for being so welcoming and so kind and asking such interesting questions. Much appreciated. Oh. Thank you, Steve Presco. Thank you. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, with your co-host, Lucia Holsether, and me, Tina Pippen, and our interview with Dr. Stephen Preskill. Our intro music, theme music, is by Lance Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our wonderful audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our outro music this time is pretty special, it's by Dr. Stephen Brookfield, who has been on the podcast before, and he is a collaborator and co-writer with Stephen Preskill of several books. And this is his song, Godzilla's a Punk, with his band, The 99ers. Their music is available on YouTube and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. Let's go.